the human genome, the instructions that make our species what it is. Our genome includes about 20,000 genes, 20,000 packets of information made of DNA, packets that contain the instructions to build every human cell. The genome's a package set. There aren't any partial copies. Each of our 30 trillion cells gets a complete version of the genome, all 20,000 genes. And yes, it's hard to do that math in your head. So if you can imagine each cell within the human body has essentially two meters of DNA. If you were to take the DNA out of each cell, it would stretch two meters. And that two meter length of DNA must fit inside the nucleus of a cell, which is less than the size of a pinhead in diameter. If there's a better job of packing in all of biology, I'd like to see it. But here's the question. If every human cell contains every single human gene, how does the cell know what to do? What process determines whether it becomes a pancreas or a patella? And what happens if that process falters? If the right gene is selected, but cast in the wrong role? I'm Ken Schulman, and this is Unraveled, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast. Genetics, as the name implies, is the study of genes, those packets of DNA that contain the instructions to create all living things from yeast cells to fruit flies to humans. Genetics have given us a huge leg up in the fight against cancer. Today, we can trace the source of many cancers back to mutations in specific genes. This opens the door for targeted therapies that can be more precise and less toxic than traditional cancer therapies. But, as usual, there's more to the story here. A lot more. Starting with size. The human genome is microscopic. Six feet of DNA wrapped tightly around tiny protein spools and then crammed into a space 15 times smaller than the diameter of a human hair. At that level of compression, only a very small subset of our 20,000 genes are on the surface and accessible at any given time. So to allow that amount of genetic information to be condensed so many times and to be put inside the nucleus of a cell, uh, there must be factors that can control how this DNA, this genetic material is actually packaged within the nucleus. And so there, if you can pack, you can imagine a box of books. If you're packing a bunch of books in a box and suddenly you want to access a book that's at the very bottom of that box, you're going to have to do some unpacking. That's Sigal Kadosh. She studies epigenetics at Dana-Farber. That's right, epigenetics, the study of the epigenome. The epigenome are the factors that determine which of our genes are expressed and which of them are muted. The factors that determine whether a given cell becomes a bicep or a brain. Whether a page in the instruction booklet is read, scanned, or skipped over. And so the factors that we study are essentially the unpackers. They unpack tightly coiled DNA, which is largely turned, uh, the, the genes uh, that are in that region of DNA are largely turned off, and they open up that DNA to be able to be expressed. So the genes that then are contained in that stretch of DNA can then be turned on at the appropriate times. Epigenetics, 
The study of factors that unpack our DNA, that six-foot strand wrapped around those tiny protein spools. Epigenetic factors jiggle those spools to loosen a stretch of DNA so it can be read, or they crank the spools to put another section out of eye shot. It's wonderfully and almost confoundingly complex. Imagine playing a four-dimensional slot machine where dozens and dozens of cherries have to line up in space and time in order for you to have your father's eyes and your mother's nose. And that's only a vague metaphor. For now, just know the epigenome has myriad moving parts and that it keeps our 20,000 genes in line. Just like the genome, the epigenome occasionally stumbles. And these missteps, these epigenetic mutations, can favor or even cause cancer. Epigenetic mutations can turn off genes that cells need to grow healthy and strong. And they can switch on genes that fuel runaway growth, genes that feed tumors. The part of the epigenome that Sigal Kadosh studies is called a BAF complex. That's BAF, B-A-F. The acronym stands for a group of proteins, a protein complex, that rolls up and down our DNA, choosing which genes will be selected for expression. How does it work? The BAF complex loosens the spools of DNA so key genes can be accessed and read at the right time. By doing its job, the BAF complex helps cells and tissues develop normally, and this can help prevent cancer. The BAF complex isn't a loner. There are many similar complexes in the epigenome, but this one, the one that Kadosh studies, punches way above its weight in terms of cancer prevention. In fact, she's linked more than a fifth of all human cancers to defects in the BAF complex to this specific epigenetic miscue. You know, in some cancers, it's a 100% the hallmark feature is a problem in this one complex that we study. And in other cancers, you know, much more common cancers, for example, lung cancer, you know, 12% of lung cancers have a mutation in this complex. Um, you know, 60, 70% of ovarian cancers, you know, so to see that if you tally up the mutations in all the various components of this multi-component regulator, these tally to over 20% of human cancers. The idea of the epigenome isn't all that new. Back in the 1740s, Carl Linnaeus, the Swedish botanist, observed changes in flowering plants that he couldn't explain with classical genetics. That was an early glimpse of the epigenome. But it wasn't until the 1970s that scientists began to understand how the system worked. And it would take another two decades before researchers made the first connection between the epigenome and cancer. And even then, it was a limited connection. That first connection was made when scientists discovered something called DNA methylation. That's a process that occurs during cell division where a chemical tail is pinned onto a DNA molecule. The chemical tail quiets the gene. And with that gene silenced, other genes take its place in the growth program. If enough of the growth program is altered, the result can be cancer. DNA methylation was an important discovery but it was only the tip of the epigenetic iceberg. Over the years, we've come to realize that, you know, things that we thought were relatively simple and straightforward are always more complicated. That's Miles Brown. He directs the Center for Functional Cancer Epigenetics at Dana-Farber. 
Brown studies how steroid hormones, hormones like estrogen and androgen, drive certain cancers. When he started out, he thought those steroid hormones caused DNA methylation, that they help produce the chemical tail that muffles genes. It turned out he was wrong. Brown learned that the steroid hormones didn't use DNA methylation. Instead, they drive cancer by bonding directly with receptors in tumor cells. That bonding makes tumors grow faster. As Brown and many others learned, the epigenome has lots of tools in its toolkit. There are chemical tails like the ones in DNA methylation. But there are also enzymes that scientists call writers, enzymes that scribble notes on DNA. And there are other enzymes called readers that, you guessed it, read those notes. There are even enzymes called erasers. If all this sounds complicated, that's because it is, and because it has to be. The human genome has only about 20,000 genes, and that's only about three times more than a simple organism like a yeast. But of course, humans are more than three times more complicated than a yeast. So, it's not the number of genes that makes us what we are. It's the way we've evolved over time in using those genes. If there's a system that makes us truly special, it's the epigenome, the software program that runs on our cellular genetic hardware. And it's a big program that requires lots of computing power and lots of memory. And it's a program that occasionally malfunctions. Let's take a moment here. We know that our genome and our epigenome can experience mutations. And we know that in both cases, these mutations can lead to cancer. But the two processes, the way they unfold, are different. A DNA mutation is like a script error, a case of garbled instructions. A mutation in the epigenome is like a total rewrite, when one set of instructions is swapped out for another. Think of a soap factory. A genetic mutation would be a broken mold that makes the bars of soap come out looking like Swiss cheese. An epigenetic error in that same factory would be like someone reprogramming the machine to make it spit out tennis rackets. Perfectly good tennis rackets, mind you, but they won't get your hands clean. But here's the most important thing about the epigenome and cancer. Unlike genetic mutations, which are mostly permanent, mutations in the epigenome can be undone, which is why researchers like Brown are so interested in the epigenome. The attraction of epigenetic changes is that they are, by their nature, reversible. That's their nature is to change program uh, during development, for example. And while not simple, they aren't permanent. Back to Sigal Kadosh and the Bath Complex. That's the protein group that fine-tunes our DNA. Kadosh is one of Dana-Farber's youngest lab directors. She can't remember a time when she wasn't interested in science. At six years old, she already had her own microscope. All through her childhood, she went on regular nature walks with her parents and with a beloved caretaker. 
I loved kind of going back and forth between reading books, you know, with this caretaker and with my parents and then going out into nature and trying to understand how much of what was in the textbook or in the book that I was reading was actually true and how much were there other nuances that perhaps one could only glean from really being out in the fields or outside. And I think that's a parallel for research as well. One can learn a certain amount from textbooks and of course you need the fundamentals there, but so many of the answers are still unknown. Shortly after Kadosh turned 12, her caretaker was diagnosed with end-stage breast cancer. And within just a short, uh, short three months, she actually passed away. And this had a profound impact uh, on me as a, as a young adolescent and as a person, and it has continued to have an impact on me all throughout my life. In fact, this was really, I would say, the, what initiated my interests and ultimately lifelong commitment to cancer research. When she was in high school, Kato shattered her uncle, a radiation oncologist, as he made his hospital rounds. She watched him treat patients. She saw how some of them got better and some of them didn't. And I just couldn't find the answer as to why that would be. And, you know, I sat in between patients. I would sit in his office and read textbooks, and I tried to read every textbook that was on his shelf, just trying to see how much I could understand of this advanced material, uh, which was advanced for me at the time. And a lot of times the answers weren't in there. Kados continued to shadow patients in college. She read everything she could about cancer and its biology. But the answers still weren't coming. And then it dawned on her. She wasn't going to find what she was looking for in a textbook. I was going to have to search for them myself. And I was going to have to start engaging in the research community to figure out what are all the strategies we have to explore scientific questions. And that's what really got me excited about research. The BAF complex that Kadosh and her labs study, the group of proteins that, when defective, is implicated in more than 20% of all human cancers, belongs to a family of molecular machines called chromatin remodelers. Let's unpack that. Chromatin, that's the fancy name for the weave of DNA and proteins that makes up our chromosomes. Chromatin remodelers like the BAF complex do exactly what the name suggests. They remodel chromatin. Think of a well-honed team of master artisans supervising proper cell development and growth. Kados was interviewing for a PhD program at Stanford when she first encountered the bath complex. The admissions committee there arranged for her to meet with a senior faculty member named Gerald Crabtree. Crabtree studied stem cells along with the development of the brain and nervous system. Kadosh, on the other hand, was almost solely interested in cancer biology. To this day, she doesn't know how Crabtree ended up on her list. He had done some beautiful work in the context of the vertebrate nervous system and even other tissues and really exploring the roles for chromatin regulatory machinery in development. And I just didn't realize that that was going to be of interest to me. But when I heard him describe the work that was going on in the lab, again, focus on the brain and on the development of, of human tissues, I was intrigued by his description of these factors, which I now um, study in our whole lab studies, these BAF complexes, chromatin regulatory complexes, that were required for virtually every cell fate transition, for every development of every tissue. And it just seemed that, as he was describing this, it's exactly the type of process that goes awry in cancer. Whether their meeting was by accident or design, Crabtree became her thesis advisor. Kadosh told him she wanted to find a link between the bath complex, 
that chromatin remodeler that Crabtree worked on, and cancer. And so he sort of set me loose. And, you know, I was surprised and still looking back on that. I'm still surprised that he let me do that. There wasn't anybody in the lab studying cancer. He himself wasn't really studying cancer. I happened to be in the cancer biology program. But jumping into the lab, he essentially just showed me a bench. It was just an empty bench, gave me a set of pipettes and just said, knock yourself out and go, go for it. The work went well. At the same time, a flurry of papers appeared in major journals, all about chromatin remodelers and cancer. Time and time again, I remember actually pushing, I could barely keep up with the printer, pushing print to print these papers and run down the hall to show Jerry yet another paper was implicating these genes and mutations in these genes as a major cause or contributor to human cancers. While still in grad school, Kadosh published two important papers. In the first, she showed how a gene mutation in the BAF complex leads to a rare and hard-to-treat cancer called synovial sarcoma. In the second paper, she dropped a bomb, the bomb that linked defects in the BAF complex to 20% or even more of all human cancers. This is a huge, previously entirely unappreciated burden. And it behooves us then as researchers to understand the mechanisms of these large you know, molecular machines and to be able to find new strategies to impact their activities on the genome. In science, as in most fields, you need to know how things work before you can fix them. If we're going to invent new strategies to impact the epigenome, we need to fully understand it. We already have some of the details. The DNA methylation, that chemical tail that hits a gene's mute button. Hormones that bond with cell receptors and convince them to change their preference. And chromatin remodelers, those artisans that fine-tune our chromosomes, jiggling or cranking the spools to make sure the right genes are expressed. We've seen that some cancers are driven by genetic mutations, by hardware glitches, and that other cancers are fueled by mistakes in the epigenome, by software bugs. But sometimes the line between hardware and software is blurred. Scott Armstrong studies a cancer that hijacks both systems, a pediatric cancer called mixed lineage leukemia, or MLL. It's most prominent, most well-known, if you will, in children less than one year of age, infant leukemia, because if a child is diagnosed with leukemia before the age of one, the likelihood that they have mixed lineage leukemia as defined by a mutation in the mixed lineage leukemia gene is about 70%. Armstrong is chairman of the Department of Pediatric Oncology at Dana-Farber. He says doctors can cure many forms of pediatric leukemia with chemotherapy and other standard therapies, but they haven't had the same success treating MLL. So as a pediatric oncologist, where we cure most of our patients with leukemia, these types of leukemia stand out because it's much more difficult to cure them. Armstrong and his Dana-Farber colleagues were among the first researchers to map out how mutations in the MLL gene induce leukemia. But as the cancer progressed, they noticed that its growth changed it looked like the initial genetic mutations were now influencing gene selection, determining which genes were active. The lab suspected that something in the epigenome was driving this change in growth in gene activity. 
So they did a gene activity profile. That's a survey to see whether an aberrant set of genes was activated in MLL tumors. They got an assist from a very unlikely species. From, believe it or not, studies in Drosophila and the fruit fly, where they had already shown us that this similar protein that's found in the fruit fly was controlling those same sets of genes. Let's unpack that one. The mutant MLL protein was controlling the same set of genes in leukemia patients that a similar protein controlled in fruit flies, genes that wouldn't have been activated in a healthy patient, genes that drove abnormal growth. It turns out that the mutant MLL gene, the gene that causes the cancer, packs a double wallop. First, it causes the cancer. Then, it hijacks the epigenome, jiggles the DNA spools to uncoil a set of genes that will sustain the tumors. This cancer, initially caused by a genetic mutation by a script typo, produces a protein that takes over the cellular software. It gets a foot in the door, and then it rearranges the furniture. It's a very clever and very sinister survival mechanism. During normal development, cells are, to some extent, constantly sampling their environment and deciding which genes should be turned on and off as a result of what the body needs at any given time. And this type of cancer, and probably many, if not most types of cancers, take it, unfortunately take advantage of that, either in the initial steps of development or later when we try to treat them they use that adaptation process to become resistant to treatments. And we think, even though it's still a little hard to prove, that that cancers that have mutations in these genes that influence epigenetics directly may be better able to do that, have more options, if you will, to adapt. And so, yes, we we know we're fighting an enemy here that is very adaptable, and um, that obviously creates problems. Yet along with the problems, Armstrong and others also see opportunity. Because changes in the epigenome are by definition reversible, they offer an attractive target for therapies. The target is still a few years off, but we've already drawn much closer to it. A number of drugs, many developed by Dana-Farber researchers, are in clinical trials, primarily drugs for blood cancers like leukemia and lymphoma. The drugs are mostly small molecules that are agile enough to operate within the cell nucleus, that tiny space where epigenetic mischief and magic happen. I think there's a lot to be done there. We know the fundamentals now, um, but I think once we understand that, then we can develop increasingly selective drugs that can turn specific genes on and off. And that's that's really the goal. If, If we can do that, we could potentially use this therapy for all kinds of things beyond cancer. It's not unusual that research in one area of science spills over into a seemingly unrelated area, especially when you study DNA. In addition to linking the Bath complex to many human cancers, the Kadosh lab has tied defects in the same complex to intellectual disability and autism spectrum disorders. And that was um, a very exciting set of findings to come from this in the sense that it tells us a whole new way by which the chromatin remodeling activity, the unpacking activity of this complex is actually regulated. In some cases, the changes are so subtle 
Just one change. One single amino acid is sufficient to produce a majorly devastating outcome. Examining protein units like the BAF complex can be tricky. For one thing, they're large and often contain 15 or more subunits. And it's hard to extract them from cells and reduce them to their native state so they can be studied. They tend to break apart during purification. Caro struggled with the purification process for several years. Two years ago, when she and her team finally perfected it, they were able to learn much more about the 3D structure and organization of the bath complex. And that one breakthrough that we had, which was published in a 2018 cell paper that we had, we used that to inform the order of assembly. How do these big macromolecular machines piece together from 11 to 15 subunits? How do they come together? How are they pieced together? And then how would the disappearance of any one of those 11 to 15 subunits or puzzle pieces, how would that change the overall architecture of that complex? And how would it change its ability to know where it needs to go in the genome, to turn on the certain genes, to open DNA accessibility? And that's something that we've been spending quite a lot of time on. Given the critical role the BAF complex plays in human cancer, Karosh wants to study it from as many vantage points as possible. Her lab includes experts in biochemistry, physics, structural biology, genomics, and even computational biology and machine learning. Any discipline that might shed new light. Imaging is also extremely important. And more and more, what's going to be critical is understanding how these complexes are structurally arranged with one another. You want to see how all of these are interacting together. You want to be able to achieve a picture with very high resolution of the cell itself, of the nucleus, of the stretches of DNA that you're interested in, and be able to examine the various proteins that are engaging there. Kadosh intends to follow her work as it translates into therapies that can reverse cancer. She knows the foundation of the translation is basic research. The best translation and the best approaches toward therapeutic discovery really come from mechanisms that are well understood. So from our perspective, our key area of focus is to achieve the highest degree of detail for any given molecular mechanism that we are exploring. You know, we aim to achieve a complete picture of the structure and function of these chromatin remodeling complexes, understanding through the lens of evolution why we've evolved to have certain components on these complexes that weren't present in yeast, they weren't present in flies, and now here they are present in, in human cells. Why do we need to um, add those on during the process of evolution to accommodate what new feature of our genome? The problem, she says, needs to be viewed through multiple lenses, from the wide angle of evolution to an in-your-face close-up of bath machines at work and genes turning on and off. Kadosh and her lab have already made the first important steps towards translation. And so in our case, there are a number of cancer types that are uniquely dependent on the activity or the aberrant activity of these chromatin remodeling complexes. And so with as many of the times we've found a new mechanism, almost always there is a route toward a potential therapeutic opportunity that comes directly from the mechanism. You know, but of course, as you all know, to try to translate that into uh, meaningful therapeutic for a patient, a lot of work needs to be done. A lot of work needs to be done so how would an eventual therapeutic work? And which parts of the epigenome would make the best targets? Miles Brown thinks it might be possible to recruit the epigenome to ramp up our body's natural defenses, to write a software program that could turn our T-cells into cancer-fighting Navy SEALs. 
Scott Armstrong sees parallels between his work on childhood leukemia and Sigal Karosh's work on the bath complex. In both cases, he says, cancer is driven by mutant proteins that hijack the machinery, and he'd like to defeat the hijackers. And if we can figure out how to reverse that hijacking, meaning get rid of that interaction between the cancer-causing protein and, in this case, the BAF complex, then that should reverse the epigenetic process that's driving the cancer. MLL is the same way. It's a different complex that's been hijacked, but it's the same concept that the epigenetic complex that normally does something is now being used to do something wrong. There are myriad potential applications of the work that Kadosh, Armstrong, and Brown are doing on the epigenome. Armstrong thinks we may see some of the first viable epigenetic therapies in pediatric cancers, because pediatric cancers in general are simpler than adult cancers. Of course, he'd be happy to see a drug that could treat MLL. The opportunity to develop drugs that help people is certainly what drives not just as a physician, but many of us in the field, physicians and scientists. But the details of exactly how things work in a very complicated system like this is kind of what gets you up every day. Um, and, you know, when talking to younger PhD students or people in training, they'll frequently say the first time that they discovered something that they knew that they were probably the only person in the world that knew that's how it worked. That's kind of a career aha moment. And you don't lose the excitement around that when somebody shows you something that you wouldn't have thought of or it's a new idea that you know that no one's really ever thought of before. That's, that's very exciting. Next time, science fiction becomes science fact. It was like they put a Pac-Man in my body, and the Pac-Man would go through, and they would see a cancer cell go on and just eat that cancer cell instead of going through my body and destroying all my good cells. I'm Ken Schulman, and this is Unraveled, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast. What is it about Dana-Farber that makes it such a powerful adversary against cancer? It's hundreds of Dana-Farber researchers and clinicians making new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber discoverers. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Go to DanaFarber.org stories and see how what we do here changes lives everywhere.